Ooh, I like that smell. Do you now? Mm. That smells quite smell. hoppy. Yeah. So, welcome to Drink to the Past, the only podcast where we talk about our beer before we remember what else to do. Uh, except then I couldn't remember what it was called, so I had to take it out of the koozie. So we are drinking Stone Brewing Company's Viking Space Probe Double IPA. Eight uh, five APV. Yeah. Um, it's pretty. Stone makes quite a few good uh, uh, IPAs, so in theory, this should be pretty good. Uh, so, have you had sipped a little yet, there, Chris? Hmm. That is super good. So, anyways, my name is Sean Michael Patrick Thompson. As always, I'm the host of Drink to the Past, and this is my co-host, Chris. He can't tell you his name because he's drinking a beer. Audet. Uh, yeah, that was the middle name I was going to use. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, uh, what do you think of that double IPA there? I like it. I'm like, mm. it, oh, it. I would be. It's. It's not. I've had IPAs where it's like you're drinking a bouquet of flowers, basically. But right. Yeah. This is, is almost kind of. It's almost kind of fruity. Yeah. But in like a different way than a fruit beer. I, I don't know how else to describe it. My wife is yelling at the microphone from off screen, uh, or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that it's got a much uh, thicker kind of mouthfeel than a lot of uh, double IPAs I've had. Because most of the time when I see double IPA, it's just like, oh, look, an IPA with more hops. That's what I wanted. Uh, and, yeah, this uh, has kind of a lot going on there. It's got that mouthfeel. It's almost got a little bit of a creamy-ish texture, uh, which is really different for that it's almost like something you get off a of nitro tap but not quite nitro level of creaminess um yeah it's uh like hoppy and creamy and uh and i mm. yeah with enough of a multi backbone that it's not just a one note beer sweet oh. so that's really good uh what do you rate that chris rate that I want to rate that a 15. I don't. I think this is one of those beers where it's a bit, a bit too much for me to drink like stamp, like standard. But mm-hmm. but every now I'm and then enjoy, you'll. Get I'm it. enjoying it right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, it would be a little bit diff- more difficult to session, but you know, I mean, I session like friggin' bourbon barrel aged triple stouts and <laughs> weird crap like that. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm 13 ABV. You can have four of me, right? Oh. Uh, <laughs> but you can. It's I, not I, impossible. I can. <laughs> and that's why we have D&D at my place. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyways, today on Sean Drinks Something Stupid, I have an egg roll. Ah, I was hoping that would give a more hilarious crunch sound. It's only kind of crunchy. Hmm. Even though it was in the oven? Well, it's pretty good. It does crunch a little. Yeah. I can hear a bit of crunch. Mm-hmm. I'll move the crunch closer to the microphone here. Is that better? It's more you just chewing with your mouth full. For your audio pleather? Pleather? Pleather. For your audio pleather? Yes, your audio pleather. Pleather. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, actually, my wife just offered me a snack, and I was like, okay, yes, I will eat that egg roll. But today's actual Sean drinks something stupid is a pina colada made with uh, Taffer's pina colada mix. 
which I never heard of until my wife came home one day and was like, hey, I found this at Walmart. It was three bucks. And I was like, sweet, because I like pina coladas okay, but I don't usually like go out of my way for them. Uh, and now earlier, or actually yesterday when I went and got these beers, I also got a big uh, bottle of Kraken. So that, that works out pretty well. Uh, Kraken makes a better pina colada than uh, most rums, just if it comes up. Kraken makes a better everything than most rums. That's just my favorite rum. Get Buy Kraken and drink lots of it. Uh. I haven't had enough rum outside of, say, Kraken to uh, have much of a preference. That's okay. You're not missing much. <laughs> you add Kraken, you pretty much have hit the peak of rum. I mean, depending on what style of rum, obviously there's light rum versus dark rum is, you know, different styles. And then you get fruity flavored rums like uh, Malibu makes a coconut rum, stuff like that. So yeah. there's there's certainly reason to go outside of this. But if you're like me and you want your rum dark and spicy, you want Kraken. Uh, get Kraken. <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, so I'm actually going to rate my beer one higher than you. I'm going to give it a 16 for the Viking Space Probe. I just Very think nice. it's also hilarious that uh, like to think about Vikings sending up a space probe. That's amazing. That's a great name for a beer. They, they seem like they'd be more likely candidates than not. Right. And um, the uh, pina colada I got here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take another swig. Because hmm. I really like this. This might be my favorite pina colada. And I don't know. I think the mix is really good. It's better than... Uh, usually when I have a pina colada, it's at my grandpa's house. And he gets this giant-ass tub of Jose Cuervo mix. Uh, and just dumps in that with a bucket of rum. And it's it's like... It's fine. I like it. I mean, it's good. But like this, I feel like, is actually a good pina colada mix. Uh, and not like, uh, here's a big old bucket so you can have your party. Uh, which certainly there's a time and place for a big old bucket so you can have your party, but this is good. Um, give that uh, 15. Best pina colada I've had. That's pretty good. All right. Anywho, now the introductions are today. out of order. Gonna go into some news and booze. So we already did all our booze parts, I guess. But uh, for now. anyway. Uh, so, follow-up to last week's story, more drama on Cooking Mama. N didn't see that coming, did you? I didn't think this would be, like, a whole blown, full-blown conspiracy, but it is. Yeah, I'm a little surprised by all that. <laughs> yeah, like, I was surprised when it was in the news last week, and I was like, e then it, it just, like, gets even deeper convoluted. Uh, so... Office Create, the original IP holder of Cooking Mama, issued a statement that Planet Entertainment, who is the company they outsourced to publish Cooking Mama Cookstar, the game in question, uh, they were under contract to fix quality issues before releasing the game. So they weren't supposed to go ahead to production. They weren't supposed to release it on the eShop and nothing. So they released it, breaching their contract, uh, and... They are continuing as of the last time. I, I didn't look up anything in the last couple of days on this, but as of a couple of days ago, um, they were still selling the copies that they had. Um, and also, they apparently announced that they had begun development on a PlayStation 4 version of the game, which Office Create never sanctioned. Uh, 
Office Create <laughs> never told them it was okay to make a PS4 game. This has always been uh, like Nintendo uh, kind of second party exclusive game. Yeah, so I it it would I don't think Cooking Mama has ever been released outside of Nintendo consoles. I could be wrong on that, but they always start there for certain. Uh, I'm honestly, kind of baffled by this whole thing. How do, how do they? How do they screw up that much that quickly? Yeah, it's like, this is such a weird thing. And apparently Office Create has now, because of all of this retarded bullshit with uh, uh, just all of what's gone on here, they have uh, fired Planet Entertainment for the breach of contract. So uh, I don't know if a new version of the game will ever come out or if another... They're just going to do something else with the Cooking Mama or maybe just let it die. Because, I mean, who the fuck even has heard of Cooking Mama since, like, the DS, right? I remember when the first one came out and that was it. And I knew one came out sometime between then and now, but I didn't know what it was for. I think it was for Wii. And now we have this whole crazy jumble of drama. And I'm like, where did that come from? Didn't see that coming. Oh, um, yeah, that's pretty hilarious. Uh, what do you think of all that? Anything more? How does a company screw up so badly that they find I don't know. You're all coming in kind of. That's both things it's supposed to do. You're all coming in all buzzy. That's strange. Um, I'm gonna disconnect and reconnect and see if that solves the problem here. Can I hear you now? You're still kind of buzzy. I'm not sure if it's uh, something me, on your Is this any better? Yes, that's much better. Okay. Now you sound like a person instead of a robot speaking through a microphone that is leading to an amp that goes to another microphone that is turned way down. Okay. So, uh... The noise suppression is still in beta. Uh, I was using that to silence the extremely loud sound of my computer's fan blasting okay. out. Well, if it helps you know, I can't actually powers. hear it through uh, my end, so I think it's probably okay anyway. Probably. Occasionally, yeah, occasionally I'm hearing a buzz, but when you talk, it's like, it's fine. Um, okay. So, yeah, anyways, that's all for Cooking Mama. Next piece of news and booze, Star Wars Episode One Racer has a release date confirmed for May 12th for Nintendo Switch and PS4. So I'm kind of excited about that. I played a bunch of that like when it came out back in like 99 or 2000 or whenever that was. That was a long time ago. Um, it's uh, It looks like it's pretty much not been updated at all. Uh, it sounds like they've updated it a little bit, basically, to run on the new hardware, and so a few things are cleaned up just because new hardware is a billion times better than a Nintendo 64. But other than that, it still kind of looks like, you know, all old as hell. Uh, so they, they don't have any new textures. It It's still very pixely in a lot of places. Um, but I don't know. I feel like that might kind of still add some to the nostalgia factor for those of us that played it. I don't know. 
because playing them in more or less their original form, I think, is there's something to be said about that. Uh, do you ever play this one, Chris? Uh, I think that I don't remember if I did or not. If I did, I was too young to remember much of it. Uh-huh. But it seems like the kind of thing that would be cool to bring back. One of the one of the uh, good things that came out of episode one. Yeah, because I remember it being a surprisingly good racing game. Although, you know, I was like 10 or something, so what the hell did I know? But um, I remember it was like one of the buzzingest racing games ever when I was in school. I remember all the kids all talking about, oh man, I found the secret way to get over 900 miles an hour or whatever it was. It was like there's some like hidden boost mechanic that you could use that uh, like that, that was one of those things that I really liked kind of talking about back in the day that you don't really get that as much anymore because it's like you hear something on the internet or you see a video and you're like oh okay now I can replicate that instantly you know it's not like you hear all these rumors and you're like oh no you can't go over 900 miles an hour in pod racer <laughs> you know you, and you don't have any way to like fact check it or you know look it up so you had to just try for yourself and see if it worked so a lot of nostalgia for that one for me, so I'm excited. <clears throat> Next thing is a rumor from some guy on Twitter. I don't remember who it was. Um, Resident Evil 4 Remake is in development, according to this rumor. Um, which vaguely makes sense, but it's uh, apparently there's a lot of confusion on whether or not it would be <laughs> something that everybody would like because i guess everybody pretty much unanimously liked the resident evil 2 remake that came out last year and the resident evil 3 make that came out this year everybody's like yeah the gameplay is good but they cut out way too much huh. so now the question is are they going to do it like one or the other and resident evil 4 was actually kind of a different game in the franchise because uh, like you could you couldn't run and shoot at the same time and everything was kind of designed around that and everybody's wondering okay are they going to keep that are they going to you know throw it away for more of the fast-paced action of other kind of resident evil games so well it is interesting whenever they uh i don't i don't understand why they when they remake a game and then they change the design it always is a little odd to me and i'm i'm aware that I'm going after a lot of remakes, including probably the Final Fantasy VII remake for this. Uh -huh. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it always seems strange to me that you would remake something and then change a lot of core design decisions. Right. Well, it depends on really what you're kind of doing, because if you just want to kind of present the story and, like, heighten it and add a lot more detail and different things to things that couldn't necessarily get the detail, you know, 20 years ago when Final Fantasy VII came out. I think it's totally worth it. But from what Final Fantasy VII, I think, is... It's also in interesting because uh, those JRPGs, a lot of people did go through them for at least partially through the story, for mm -hmm. the story. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case for, like, Resident Evil 4. Yeah. So, like... That's a, kind of an interesting point, too, because, like, Final Fantasy VII is obviously, 
you know, the story is one of its big things because that's how JRPGs work. That you know, they you you fall in love with a JRPG for the story and the characters more than you do the gameplay in general. The gameplay still has to be good, um, and obviously, Final Fantasy VII was fairly groundbreaking in that respect for handful of reasons. The ATB thing was really cool at the time and stuff like that. But for, uh, yeah, for a Resident Evil style game, you're pretty much playing for the adventure of, you know, moving through the uh, town and killing zombies and all that sort of stuff. And not as much the story. And again, you know, it's kind of the other side of the coin. The story is still important. But if you're changing it that much and it's not necessarily in a good like if you're changing the story and you're cutting things that seems weird to me so that's what's weird to me about the resident evil 3 remake i haven't actually played it but i've been kind of looking at various people's opinions and they're like you know most people generally seem to like it as a game but they're just like they cut out so much that it, you can't even call it resident evil 3 anymore yeah it seems uh it's more like a remix than a remake. Mm-hmm. Or it's like a reimagining. I, we're, I, we already did our remakes, uh, remasters episode, but uh, yeah, maybe, can, maybe throw a maybe throw remix and reimagining yeah. into the. Yeah, into I, feel, the, I feel like you almost have that in Final Fantasy VII remake too, because it's like so far different. You know, it's taking a lot of the same fundamental things. Uh, but building upon the story and characters, completely overhauling the graphics, the combat system, the world is much more expansive, and it's really a modern experience. Kind of, but it's it's so it's it's really not the same experience. It's a reimagining of the experience in a way that was not possible previously, and in a way that I don't think would have probably sold as well previously, you know, because Final Fantasy VII came out, it was still your more or less standard JRPG formula. You have your party, you push attack when it's your turn to attack, and you use your spells through the menus and all that, right? And that's that, that was pretty much it. That, that was just how JRPGs work. And now JRPG uh, really can go in so many different directions, it's not even funny. They're not even funny. Apparently, I'm yeah, not even funny. Yeah, so. <laughs> But yeah, um, I guess that's probably all we have to say on Resident Evil, since neither of us are huge Resident Evil people, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, not a series I ever really got into. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of wanted to get into it, but then never got around to it. So I, I got the Resident Evil 3 demo on my PS4, but I haven't played it yet because i've been stuck on i uh just beat the last of us uh so that was pretty cool and uh also i've been playing final fantasy 7 remake obviously so those have kind of been sucking up my time so i haven't got to the demo yet but eventually i'll get to it i think um speaking of things our next piece of news and booze is ubisoft announced earlier this week that they were going to offer assassin's creed 2 for free via uplay which is their PC launcher app. So you just kind of boot that up and you can download and play Assassin's Creed 2 for free. 
Um, and then pretty much right after that, Sony one-upped him and was like, hey, we got Uncharted Collection for free. Um, I think it's called the Nathan Drake Collection, so it's like Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 on PS4. You can just get for free on their store. So, coronavirus gaming for the win. Woohoo! I mean, that's pretty cool for, uh, for people who want to pull that stuff down. Yeah. Uh, f- for me, it's like... I don't, I don't like, I don't like the idea behind something like Uplay. Uh-huh. So, so this is more like, it, it's a nice extra for people who don't mind that, but. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of these services are not up to Steam, they're not on par with Steam quite yet, right. or, so. I don't know, I don't do a whole lot of PC gaming, so it, it seems to me like a lot of these individual developers have services like this. Uh, where they have, like, their launcher app and stuff, so I didn't think that much of it. I was like, okay, I'll download the launcher. And then apparently, at some point, I had made an Ubisoft account in the past, and I have no idea why. So I was, like, trying to create an account, and it's like, that name is in use. I'm like, nobody else in the world calls themselves Spamo Man. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I must have done this at some point. So I put in my email and reset the password, and it sent it right to me. I was like, oh. Well, that's convenient. Um, you did make it at some point. Yeah, I was like, I literally have no idea, because I'm like, Ubisoft is a developer. I really haven't played very many of their games at all. Um, like, the notable things that I've played from them are... They published No More Heroes 1 and 2. And that's not really their game, because obviously that was developed by Grasshopper. Uh, so I'm like, what the hell else did I play by Ubisoft? I played the original Assassin's Creed for like 20 minutes. Did you ever play Far Cry? I played Far Cry, one of them, on Wii. That was pretty fun, because it, uh, used all the motion aiming and stuff on Wii. That was pretty cool. And I got, like, this little pistol attaching for my Wii remote, and, uh, actually had a pistol in the game, and that was, that was kind of cool. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what other games they put out. That, it was like one it's of like, the two games that used the Wii Zapper. It's like Red Steel or something. Did they do Red Steel? Um, I don't know. I never played Red Steel. It looked kind of okay. cool when the Wii came out. Everybody was kind of talking about it, and then everybody got it, and they were like, "Ah, it wasn't actually all that good." Yeah, it, that's that's pretty accurate. It's like it wasn't it wasn't bad. It just wasn't. It wasn't that good. Yeah, so, like, if I had been where I am, like, now, I probably would have got it at launch. But at the time, I was, like, you know, some stupid high school kid that, you know, paid a little attention but didn't make a ton of money. So I was, like, I'm not getting a Wii at launch. And then I didn't get one too far after launch because I got my first job shortly after that. And one of my first couple of paychecks, I was just wandering around in Kmart. And I noticed they had one Wii left. He's like, yeah, we got 15 Wiis in shipment this morning, and that's the one that's left. I was like, okay, I guess I got that. And I got Twilight Princess and... Or no, actually, I didn't get Twilight Princess for Wii until later, because I already had it on GameCube. So I got... My first Wii game was um, uh, Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn. 
which was actually hey, that's a that's a good first game. Yeah, that's I thought that was really good. I I feel like that game gets too much shit. What do you think Radiant Dawn gets shit? I was like I got I had Path of Radiance. Yeah, because I loved Path of Radiance, and then a sequel to Path of Radiance immediately in the aftermath of the war and everything, uh, from kind of your enemy's point of view, not really your enemy enemy, but, like, the the main characters in Radiant Dawn are from the country of Dayan, which is, like, the bad guy country in Path of Radiance. So I think it's really cool to kind of see their perspective, where they're just, you know, these villagers who didn't really know that King Ashnard went mad as balls and tried to take over the world. They I mean, just it's like, always... What were they going to do about it? Go storm his castle? Right, yeah. So they were like, oh, yeah, he always seemed like a pretty good king. And then the mad tyrant Ike came in with his mighty sword and killed our king. And, you know, so it's like really totally different perspective. And I'm like, oh, my, oh that's a really I, cool storytelling element. And I really liked it. And then you know what game I can just with compare it to? Yeah. Is uh, Dawn of the New World? Uh huh. Because they, they both kind of have similar setups. Yeah, but Fire Emblem does it good. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the difference. Is uh, it's a better game than Dawn of the New World. Yeah, because it's like you know the justification for Ike coming in and killing their king because you played the first one in theory. Uh, you know, whereas Lloyd killing a village for no fucking reason at the start of Dawn of the New World is like that doesn't sound like Lloyd at all. And even if he did, he has some justification because he's like your most like he's a fairly vanilla anime character he's like you know he's the good guy who's good to a fault right there is no possible way that this was you know not justified or not just an illusion that looked like lloyd you know but it it never tells you and it's like why do i even care anymore (laughs) after like a few hours you're just like don't care it's classic super dickery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you uh, never read that website, I did not. Okay. Uh, super dickery was a website that just had uh, like covers of comics where Superman was acting like a dick out of character. That's amazing. <laughs> and because it was like a common thing where they'd be like, Superman's acting like a bad guy. Read the comic to find out why. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's just stupid, lazy, gimmicky storytelling. Mm-hmm. Usually. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Nice. Alright. Final piece of news and booze today. Um, Crisis Remastered has been announced, and is coming to PC, of course, Xbox One, PS4, and, bump it bomb Nintendo Switch. Um, so, every port is actually being handled by the same guy. I, I forgot their name of, but anyways, whoever ported the Witcher to Switch is porting to Xbox, PS4, and Switch for Crisis. So I think this is pretty cool. Um, I've never played Crisis, but obviously, like everybody knows, fucking Crisis, right? Pr- pretty much. Well, I'm like, should I pick up Crisis? I remember the original Crisis was infamous for being incredibly pretty, but also incredibly resource-intensive to the point that even really powerful gaming computers had 
issues running it. Yeah, Kenny so now, Crisis. That whole <laughs> meme. Um, yeah. Yeah, but now it's coming to Switch. Of all games, Crisis is coming to Switch. So I'm like, I feel like there's no longer any reason for anybody to ask if Switch can handle it anymore. Right? Like, Crisis is like a 12, 15-year-old game, something like that. It came out a, quite a while ago. Uh, but it's still a game because of how resource-intensive it is that, like, if you have a regular-ass PC, you still might have trouble uh, running it, even with, like, modern parts, uh, you know. So it's like... The fact that it's going to come to Switch, and I assume it's going to be pretty good, because basically everybody says the Witcher Switch port is phenomenal. Uh, and, like, there's been a ton of other ports from various... Com Obviously, the Doom port was really good. Um, Rocket League is another one that... You know, there's, there's plenty of examples of good Switch ports. And I'm like, now it can, re it, it can run Crisis. Shut the fuck up. Can we just drop the can it switch even run this thing? I'm like, I thought it was dumb in the first place. Yeah, if, if obviously at least almost most of the time uh, when they make a game and they're creating it to go to a console, they make it so that it can work with the specs of that console. There's exceptions yeah. for like badly for like badly ported games or badly developed games, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a reason there are the exception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Crisis coming to Switch. I'm, I'm kind of on board with that. I've always sort of wanted to check it out anyways, but then I'm, now I'm like, I wonder if it's cheaper on Steam. <laughs> <laughs> we don't complete computer games, though. But I might. Anyway, um, all right, so that was all our news and booze. So now on to our video game table topic. Wow, we had two theme songs for that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, um, one of them was the sad trumpet. So, yeah, we're kind of combining our table topic and our video game topic this week uh, to go over the kind of an interesting idea. Chris came up with this topic. You want to introduce it? Sure. Uh, so I suggested we should have a combined topic on uh, unrealistic things in games and why we as players tend to accept unrealistic things, even wildly unrealistic things from video games, but why we tend to be less accepting of them in tabletop games. Mm -hmm. And I don't have... A good answer for this, but I do know that this is part of my gut reaction uh, where in a video game if I punch a trash can and a turkey comes out, I will eat it to heal. Right. Whereas, I'm, I'm not going to do that in a tabletop and I'm going to be kind of confused if someone put that in as a mechanic in a tabletop. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, when we were playing um, uh, Reclaim the Wild and they, it's a tabletop RPG based on The Legend of Zelda, and so they put into they put in this whole uh, mechanic where you can smash pots, 
and you can get hearts and you can get rupees and stuff, you know, and uh, they've got like this whole table of what's in the pot. And in any other tabletop game, if you just say there's four pots in the corner of the room, like maybe one of the players will be like, okay, is anything in them? And they'll actually look in the pot. But like nobody's just going to go over and be like, I'm going to smash it with my sword. Well, almost nobody. Right. Yeah, I, I, mean, I play with exceptions. Right, yeah. Somebody might kick it over and accidentally kill Josh or Nick or somebody died. Or me. Yeah, maybe it was you, yeah. Maybe Josh or Nick kicked it and you died. Anyway. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering if they're a different kind of unrealistic thing in video games from tabletop games. Maybe. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I, I feel like both kind of do some re- unrealistic things sometimes, so maybe it's just the expectation of the sort of unrealisticness? Yeah, it's, a uh, like in a, uh, in a video game, no one's gonna complain that you can only equip one piece of armor in your armor slot, even if, uh, say, it's like, say, one thing's a, uh, suit of plate mail and the other's a ribbon. Uh, but they will complain in a tabletop if they can't do that because they'll say right, yeah, you can tie like, the ribbon on top of it. I'll tie the ribbon on. Oh, but I've got my armor slot and my left arm slot and my right arm slot and my necktie slot and my uh, Prince Albert slot and my ah. butt plug slot. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that kind of power gamer. I, I would like a sound clip of you saying Prince Albert slot and April groaning. <laughs> Okay, I will see what I can do. <laughs> uh, but this was a thing that came up during OD&D, where it was things like clerics can't use sharp weapons, and mages cannot use weapons other than daggers in OD&D. Yeah. And uh, mages also can't wear armor. Uh-huh. And the game doesn't really bother explaining why you can't do that. Um, so there was a lot of th- argument about, okay, why can't I try and hit things with a sword? W- why can't I pick up a sword and swing it at someone? Right. Uh, yeah. But if that was present in a video game, I think people would just be like, oh, mages can't do that. The game won't let you. Right, yeah. You know, it's, it's it's not one of your designated attacks, you know, because like in a video game, a lot of times I I kind of think it's kind of funny uh, playing The Last of Us uh, to give an example of this. I had several times when I'm like, you know, kind of getting in a firefight with some guy and there's a guy across the way shooting me with a shotgun and I'm like, oh, man, I can kill him and I can take his shotgun ammo. But not every guy with a shotgun will drop shotgun ammo. You know, it's it, it's just kind of. One of those funny things where you don't actually get the gun they were using necessarily. Like, I've killed guys with no gun, and they're like, oh, here's uh, three uh, refill cartridges for your flamethrower. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why did you have those? Why did you use that? (laughs) Right. But it's like, you you just kind of give way and be like, oh, it's a video game. It's a random drop. It's fine. (laughs) And sometimes I wonder if part of it is... uh that you can't really negotiate with a computer. Yeah. Like if like if I try to do something in uh, 
tabletop and you're like, you can't do that because you're not allowed because of the game rules, I can argue with you. I can be like, yeah, but this makes sense. I should be able to do it. Right, yeah. Because theoretically, uh, if we're in some sort of survival horror, you know, uh, something similar to that, you know, you could, you know, kill that guy and go be like, oh, he was shooting at me with a shotgun. Can I take it and see if it's got any rounds in it? And the DM, in 90% of the situations, would probably be like, okay. Yeah. But what's funny to me is that we don't... Is that if you walk over to an enemy with a shotgun in a video game, and you can't pick it up, you won't even think twice about why you can't pick it up. Right, yeah. You'll just be like, oh, that guy's dead. You know, he dropped... Yeah. Especially in, uh, in um, like, more high fantasy kind of things, where it's like... Basically, every enemy has a sword, but you already have a sword, so you don't need to pick up their sword. It's probably some trash tier sword. Unless it comes out of a treasure chest, it's worthless. Like, even in games like World of Warcraft, where you can pick up the sword of a random dick on the side of the road sometimes when you kill a monster for a quest that's arduous and pointless, you pick up the sword, and it's gray, and it does damage, and it has no magical effect, so you go to the vendor when you go back to town, and you sell it for a copper. <laughs> that is its purpose. It's not meant to be a sword. It's meant to be a... Vendor trash. Vendor trash, or even worse than that sometimes. It's just meant to be, okay, they had a sword, you can't pick it up. It's fine. Whatever. Move on. So, what I... Also... Part of what I think something related to this that I kind of wanted to get into is like in video games, there are certain things you can do that'll just instantly cause you death. And I'm mostly talking about platformers. Like you, right. you jump down a pit, instant death. You, uh, or you fall in, you can't, you fall in water in the wrong level, instant death. You jump on top of, you just brush up against spikes, instant death kind of things. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of flashbacks. I just beat Celeste. <laughs> you beat it? I did. Um, hey, you want to take... Uh, after we're done with this point, you want to you wanna take some time and talk about that? I'd, I'd be interested in hearing about that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is our podcast. We can do whatever the fuck we want. So we can get back yeah. to this. Because <laughs> okay. uh, Celeste, I, I was actually kind of surprised. I thought it would be harder in the last level because of how like people were talking about it. And I was like... I feel like it was still basically on par with the... I feel like it had a natural progression. It was like, it kept getting harder and harder and harder, and yeah, I died, you know, I think 600 times or something in the last level, but I was like, whatever, that seems like a, a normal progression, you know, it's just trial and error until you kind of get the right series of things, and it's like, okay... I, you know, I, I kept trying and I got it. And I, I felt like I would have raged more at it like everybody is saying that they do in the last level. And I was like, eh, it was fine. I think it's more that the final level is just kind of a marathon. Uh-huh. Because it's... Uh, um, like, very minor spoiler. It's a lot of the previous levels basically stitched together. Yeah. Um... That's And I thought that was actually a really cool thing about it, though, too, is that it's like, oh, now you're kind of reliving, uh, you know, the whole game in a sort of a shorter kind of uh, more compact form, but it's also bumped up to the difficulty level where you're at now. 
and increasing uh, even further to there. So I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What, what would you rate Celeste on a on your three to seventeen scale? Um, this was a lot of fun. I'm gonna give it a fourteen. Um, okay. I I feel like the story was cool. I get why people really connect with it, but I didn't particularly. I thought it was good. Um, but it's like I feel like it was also kind of bare bones. It could have been a lot more. Uh, which I feel like it shouldn't necessarily have been a lot more, but it could have been like because I feel what? like the way that it was presented did feel really natural in the context of how the game plays. So and what? Flows. But yeah, I will say is that there is a lot of extra secret bonus stages that are mm. significantly harder okay. in the game. Uh, but I, I, I kind of, I, I would probably rate it somewhere around that. I'd, I'd probably rate it a fifteen based on like the gameplay and the story, and then just give it a plus one for that soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, the music was really good too. Um, I feel like that just heightened the whole experience the whole time. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a good game. Um, so yeah, why do we jump on spikes in Celeste five hundred times and you die instantly the moment you even you know one pixel collides? You're dead. <laughs> But in a tabletop, you fall into a pit of spikes and you're like, oh, it should just deal me damage. It can't instantly kill me. Yeah. Or it's, you expect like a range of outcomes. Yeah. Or you expect, oh, I'm wearing plate armor and these are wooden spikes. I pro like, I understand like I might get hurt from the fall, but I pro probably shouldn't like kill me instantly. Right, yeah, with wooden spikes, you might crush them under your armor. Yeah, you can do stuff like that. And uh, this is kind of maybe a little bit reaching on my part, but I almost want to say games are much better, video games are much better at conveying how the world they work under follows different rules than tabletop games do. Yeah, because the world rules in a tabletop are all kind of have to be conveyed through the GM or interpreted by the players or some combination of both because i feel like the gm kind of has to give you what his idea of the rules of the world are and every player is going to interpret that a little bit differently depending on their play style depending on how their brain works and yada yada everybody's gonna have kind of a different idea of you know what the standards are for this world and its physics and its, you know, cause and effect. It's going to be different than our world and it's probably going to be different from any video game world they've really gone into and everybody's going to have a slightly different understanding of it. Yeah. So it's, but if you wanted to get away with doing something like, oh, you fall off the deck of the ship and you hit touch water, you're instantly dead. Uh, you can bet a player is going to complain about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, players complain about instant death effects most of the time when they happen anyway. Yeah, but, and that that's that's like a different thing, too. Uh-huh. That's... Tabletop RPGs don't have the expectation that you trial and error death yourself unless you're playing, like, old-school D&D, which is not the case for most modern-day players. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but having rules that are that distinct from real life is a much harder thing to convey in tabletop games overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I had another point that I was kind of going to go over. I, um, I think that also video games kind of set up your expectations in a way that tabletops can't, no matter what, because you can see what is happening in the world, right? You, you can actually literally see it. I feel like just having visual representation goes a million miles towards... Uh, conveying what the world is about and how the world works. Um, which, you can have some amount of visual representation in tabletops, obviously. You can have minis placed on a map or the grid and all that. And you can do some cool stuff, but it's not quite the same as actually having you know, detailed 3D environments that you can kind of walk through, jump on things, climb things, you know, depending on the game, whatever you, whatever you need to do. Um, and I feel like it's just something that it's, you're more adaptive when you can kind of see it and experience it a little more directly because you're interfacing directly with the character. You're commanding every single thing they do. And even if you're not necessarily telling them to do something, you'll probably notice them do something on their own. Like, you know, in some games you'll be walking forward and you'll come up to, a a ledge and your gear character will automatically climb it okay cool so now you know how to climb a ledge uh you know and it it goes from there even to much more complicated things like you accidentally push the right combination of buttons and accidentally discover some new ability that you have or especially in fighting games when you're just like um, first experimenting with the characters and you know like some of their moves and then you accidentally hit something else and you're like oh wait I'm in a new stance how did that happen you know stuff like that so I feel like that kind of direct connection to the character coupled with the visual representation just takes it to a place where the video game can kind of dictate what's going on in a way that tabletops can't and so whatever it tells you you just kind of automatically are just like, okay, I, I believe this because the game has told me it is so. It, told me it, it has told me it's so. It's shown me it's so. Yeah, you, you've watched it. You've experienced it firsthand that it, this is so. And uh, one more thing that's kind of related but is more of a secondary reason mm-hmm. is that Video games let you interact and play directly with the system in a way that tabletop games just don't outside of, say, character-building minigames. And they Uh give you immediate feedback in a way tabletop games can't. Yeah. It's, uh, if you make a mistake in a tabletop game, you may spend the next half hour resolving the consequences of it where in a video game usually you resolve that mistake quite a bit faster yeah uh especially depending on you know how the mistake is resolved because like in a game like celeste you make a mistake okay you're back at the start of this thing try again 
in other games, it's like, okay, maybe you have to start back from another checkpoint. Maybe you have to start back from the start of the level, something like that. Uh, your last there's time not, you saved. Yeah. In better design games, there's not a lot of time spent in a state where you're in the process of losing but haven't actually lost yet. Oh. Or in, like, a long failure state. I mean, there are games like that, and then they get routinely criticized. But a tabletop game can have that happen and just not have a way out. Uh Outside of the DM being like, okay, you guys, uh, that guy dies, make a new character. I I know that they're technically still alive, but they're probably going to die. Uh And you probably don't want to play through that. Yeah, um, and sometimes it can make for interesting roleplay segments where it's like, we don't know if he's alive, we don't know if he can survive through this, uh, but then I'll have my zombie jump in the water and retrieve his corpse, only to find that it's not a corpse, and then I have to kill him myself. (laughs) I mean, what? I'm not that evil, am I? Not currently. I mean, Silas sure was. Yeah, I would. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, you know that's a that's a interesting kind of a um what am I trying to say here <clears throat> yeah it's interesting to see how different it is because it's like also players in a tabletop will think of different ways to fix their mistakes because it's it's gonna have like more tangible consequences than it is in a video game because if you make a mistake in a video game like probably if it's detrimental to you the answer is you die and then you just start over and you try again in tabletops you don't start over there is no reset button there's no lives there's you know unless you're in a high level campaign and you've got resurrection magic sure but in most tabletop games it's like Once you die, you know, it's like, okay, roll up a new character, and the other characters have to kind of, you know, figure out what to do themselves. Uh, And to that extent, there's also, like, different kinds of consequences in tabletop games that don't come up in video games. Because, like, you'll have an issue where, like, oh, you told the wrong guard the wrong thing, and now he just won't believe any of you. Uh, And so he won't let you into wherever you're trying to go into like the town or something and now the zombies are going to come out so you got to find a way to sneak into town or something like that that's not something that happens in video games in video games it's like that stuff happens in a cutscene, or you know that's about it like it, it'll have a detailed way uh, that will almost definitely be one specific way to get into town to escape the zombies they come out at night or something Video games very rarely have a failure state where you're just stuck in, stuck with it. Yeah. In tabletop games, I think uh, tabletop RPGs, I want to say they're less forgiving in that way, uh-huh. except that they also allow for more courses of action. Mm-hmm. Like in a tape in a video game, it's just there's probably a set number of ways to do a thing. Yeah. So, and you have to take one of those ways, but in a tabletop game, you fail, the the guard no longer believes you, but you can still, like, creep over the walls, or you can go to another town over and pay a high-level wizard to teleport you into that town. Right. 
or, or maybe something. you could pay off the guard or something, you know, any number yeah. of different things. And and now that we've said all those things, if we were actually DMing, the party would come up with a totally different thing that we never expected because that's how yeah. it works. <laughs> but you can't, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of railroaded into one decision or another in a video game almost all of the time, you know. There's a handful of exceptions, obviously, where you got, like, things you can solve puzzles different ways or stuff like that or go to different places in different orders um but for the most part it's like there's one way to do the thing that you need to do and so now i'm thinking is there like something core to video games that makes us more accepting of their limitations in a way that we aren't that more accepting of their artificial limitations in a way that we aren't with uh, tabletop games. And I'm thinking of in specific Disco Elysium with its skill systems and otherwise mostly tabletop RPG-ish way of handling things. Uh Uh, Where I don't think there was a point in the game where I was walking around doing stuff and I was like, I should be able to try this thing or I should be able to do this thing, why won't the game let me? Right. Or I should be able to succeed at this thing, why is the game not letting me succeed at this thing? And even though the game is about as close as you could get to a tabletop RPG in a video game as possible. Right. So, is it just because it's a video game that I accept that no, I cannot climb up the side of this building. I guess, you know, cause it's like, that's one of those things in breath of the wild where it's like, uh, one of the big core mechanics is you can climb anything unless you're inside a shrine, then you can't climb anything ever. And it's like, okay, you, you almost have two settings, you know, you have like exploration outside the shrines mode and you have shrine mode where you're like, okay, now it's more or less a traditional Zelda dungeon where you have to go figure out the puzzle and whatever in order to, you know, progress. Yeah. But it also at the same time takes away a core mechanic of the game. And that's weird that it just does that and nobody cares. Because, like, if you say, like, in Dungeons & Dragons, that you go into a dungeon and you're like, nobody can use charge attacks. Like, the warrior, or you know, whatever, whatever, like, melee fighters you have are going to be like, no, I call bullshit. (laughs) You know? But in Breath of the Wild, you just kind of don't question it. You're just like, okay, I can't climb here because that's how the puzzle is designed. But you can't design a puzzle that way in D&D or in a tabletop. And in D&D, I feel like at higher, the higher level you get, the harder it is to design a puzzle that the players just can't get around with spells. Right, yeah. I, I have had that issue sometimes when I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll tease the boss room door like early in the dungeon and then they have to go collect the keys to open it and then somebody's like oh yeah i use this spell it's open and we go to the boss and we skip the entire dungeon and i'm like oh yeah we're just like no you know no big harm done we still usually have fun with the session but it's just like ah i designed this dungeon and you just bypassed the entire thing 
<laughs> I'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll explore the dungeon if there's loot in there. Like 24 cans of Mountain Dew on a refrigerator. Right, yeah. That's like the best loot. Maybe there's something to be said about fighting the boss fighting the boss first and then going around and taking care of a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing that you can kind of do, too, in a tabletop that you wouldn't... I feel like that would be really different in a tabletop because you go in a video game, if you somehow manage to go to the boss first and kill him, then go through to get, like, the rest of your treasure. Or, or even if you just, like, don't 100% clear the dungeon, right? You just get the necessary items, go kill the boss. Then you just have a couple of treasure chests to clean up at the end. All the monsters are still there. All of the dungeon bosses, like, uh, minions are still there. But, like, in a in a tabletop campaign, I feel like the players would be like, why are these guys here? We'll just tell them, hey, we just killed your boss. He's not here anymore. Go the fuck away or we'll kill you too. And like half the time, I feel like that would work in most dungeon settings in a tabletop game. That reminds me of an episode of Konosuba, but uh, I'll get into that after the podcast probably. Okay. (laughs) It's not something to be brought up here. Uh, yeah, because tabletop games allow for more freedom uh, as a nature of being moderated by a person, uh-huh. uh, tabletop players tend to be more, almost more sensitive to breaks from what they consider reasonable reality, uh-huh. even if it's something that's just like an artifact of the game. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure everyone's at least had one experience with a particularly uh, poor, spirited player, where they're like, "Oh, I hit the, I hit the guy with this thing. They should be instantly dead, right?" Uh-huh. Even though that's just not how the game works. Right. Or on the other hand, you know, some players we've had have probably had the opposite where they're like, oh, I uh, use or, or, or a more a more reasonable kind of situation where it's like they attempt to do a thing, but it simply doesn't work because the rules get in the way and they just they just don't know the rules particularly. Um, I feel like that's handled kind of the same almost in both of these two because we're in a video game like you cast a fire spell on something that's immune to fire it's not going to take the damage uh but in some cases the tabletops word it oddly like um we had a buddy that was playing with us a few sessions ago that um cast some he won he wanted to cast some kind of, i don't remember what the spell was but it's a mind affecting <laughs> spell on a golem and golems are mindless and therefore immune to mind-affecting spells. But uh, the spell description read, it's effective on any creature, and it and the effect works on any creature. So he's, like, kind of conflicted that the, like, he kind of understood it once we kind of explained it to him, but it was still kind of like, he, he did have a cool plan, and I kind of wanted it to just, like, DM hand-wave it, but I was like, eh, it is mindless, you can't, yeah. Yeah. It's like most of the time I try to, you know, let players do stuff. But if it is strictly against the rules, then most of the time I'll just go with the rules. So is it just a question of understanding then in some cases? Maybe, because like if you 
it probably like obviously in a video game if he used the same spell like the spell description might say something like it probably wouldn't say it affects any creature it probably would just tell you the spell description and you'd try it on the golem and it wouldn't work and you'd move on to your next spell and do something else yeah video game would give you instant feedback and whether you understood it or not you'd understand the game wasn't allowing it yeah so you'd just be like okay move on unless it's like a bullshit game where it's just like it doesn't make any sense and like the like (laughs) there's a a really weird obscure example but um in zelda's adventure for the cdi there is a boss in the game that is immune to every single weapon except for one in the entire game. For no reason. And you have to get this one weapon specifically to damage this boss. And nothing else will work at all. So, in that case, it's like, I feel like the game does a worse job of explaining it. Uh, and I almost think early games are full of things like that where you need to get a specific thing or you need to do a specific thing, but the game never really explains it. So you can just get hung up on it. Yeah, but I feel like in other cases it was handled a little better where it's not like there's literally one sword in the game and it doesn't tell you that it's not damaging it. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure because it, like, it has the hit detection and it knocks back with other swords, but it just does no damage. Unless you have the right sword, which is, like, some completely, uh, like, otherwise you would think this is an optional item in the game. Because I don't think it's as good as some of the other sword. I don't, I'm not an expert on this game. I've never played it. But, um, it's kind of this, like, the worst possible scenario of handling it badly. Whereas, like, you get, like, The Legend of Zelda... The original one, it had stuff kind of like that. You could only kill Ganon with the silver arrow. Um, and it's it's a weird, obscure mechanic, but it's like if you're reading all the guidebooks and things, which was also mo- a lot more normal back then, then you'd know that like that was one of his one weaknesses. So you'd have to go search for that. Uh, and it's it's in the same dungeon, so you you would probably figure it out eventually. Uh, so it, it is a weird product of old games, but some of the old games handled it a lot better than this one. And now I'm thinking, now now this has got me thinking with this, uh, this, uh, lock only one valid key thing that happened more and often in old games, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that wasn't that isn't really a thing in tabletop games except in some older editions in Dungeons and Dragons where the monsters had things like immune to non-magic weapons and it didn't really describe why they were immune to non-magic weapons yeah and now it's like in you know even in in relatively what what I consider modern quote unquote D&D is like 3.0 and above cuz every I feel like everything since 3.0 kind of relates back to 3.0 somehow except the fourth and I think we're using a similar 
definition here where modern D&D is like 3.0 and 5th edition. Yeah. And old D&D is like 1st edition and 0th edition. Yeah. Uh, uh, AD&D and stuff like that. Yeah. But there were certain monsters were all could not be hit by weapons that weren't silver or magic. But yeah, now it's like, okay, now they've got, like, some creatures are only, like, uh, you know, they're incorporeal, so they're only, you have a 50% hit chance if you have a magic weapon and a 0% hit chance if you have a non-magic. But it's it's got that incorporeal descriptor, so you know why that happens. And I feel like that sort of thing just became a standard of D&D in third edition where it's like, okay, now everything kind of has it. And I feel like to a lesser extent, it was kind of building on that in second edition. Cause I played some second edition and it, it seemed at least more sensical logically kind of presented than first edition where I felt like it was all just fuck the players. But <laughs> so, and Oh man, if, if there's any first edition fan- there, there's gonna be, there's gonna be some blood. <laughs> right. Since first edition was the Guy Gax's last edition, and second edition was released under like a more corporate guideline. But uh, uh, what what I'd say is that uh, in OD&D, you could get monsters that you couldn't hit with weapons. Uh, unless they were magic weapons that were totally corporeal. And it didn't explain why they were immune to those weapons. Things like, uh, say, whites, uh, which were, or wraiths, uh, which were like ring wraiths back in OD&D. So they yeah. were like physical creatures that could hold stuff. You could hit them with a weapon and they just wouldn't be harmed by it. Or were- werewolves wouldn't be harmed by weapons that weren't silver. You could hit them and uh, it didn't explain how they were immune to damage from weapons that weren't silver, but they just were. Yeah. So maybe it really is a question of just communicating why those things are the way they are. Yeah, because I feel like if you have a player base who's on board with something crazy uh kind of going back to our root topic here unrealistic things uh people are hesitant in tabletops unless you kind of set it as the standard at the beginning like if you set it the standard this is a sci-fi future superpower campaign then i feel like you can do anything in that setting and nobody will question any of it a guy shoots chickens from his eyes okay cool this dude uh, shards rainbows and they burn you with acid damage. Cool, whatever, you know. Um, but in, I feel like maybe there's just a different expectation because, you know, in like a standard high fantasy D and D setting, you don't expect necessarily certain kinds of things unless they're introduced early on in that presentation. Uh, moreover the initial presentation because if you say we're doing a an eberron campaign 
or a, a steampunk campaign. You know that there's going to be like clockwork machinery, maybe warforged running around, you know, different things like that. But if you are just like, we want to play some D&D, and that's all you say, I feel like there's this initial kind of visualization from most people that this is going to be a medieval setting, but a high fantasy medieval. So it's going to be like magic and magic using, but like basically no machinery except for the machinery that's inexplicably hidden in dungeons, which we sort of talked about last week. <laughs> yeah. The wizard with the ray gun being like a classic thing. Yeah. <laughs> so is it just that tabletop RPGs have to justify in theory, infinitely many things and video games have like they're finite. They have, they're either finite in scope or they're finite and like uh, what they can show. They're like finite design. Yeah, maybe something like that. Because I guess theoretically, if you don't tell people what's going to happen in your campaign from the get-go, you know, they're you know they're not going to expect it but in a video game if something unexpected happens you just sort of go along with it because it's if it's presented well it's presented in a natural way even if it doesn't specifically really make sense like all of this fascinating incredible technology that the Sheikahs have in Breath of the Wild or that like you can see with the time shift stones in Skyward Sword Stuff like that. It's like this ancient technology. It's dead for thousands of years, and you have to kind of work with it. And it does. It doesn't really make sense. And but because it's a video game, because you're getting that visual representation, and you're just you have a tangible way to interact with it. You kind of forget that. And at first, maybe you kind of have some of those feelings, but they kind of go away as you just like work with the mechanic because that's what you do in a video game. You work with what you're given. Whereas in a tabletop game, you're given a whole world and you, you, you don't have to work within limitations of the game. You work, you, you just do whatever you want instead of being like, okay, this is how the mechanic works, so I use it, whether or not it makes sense. Yeah. Mm. There's Good. no... You don't ever have to justify a mechanic in a top game. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, is there yeah. anything else we want to say on this? Uh, I don't have much cool. summary being just tabletop games are infinite. The DM is a human being that you can hypothetically negotiate with. Mm -hmm. And the expectation that tabletop games work more like the real world. There's, a, there's infinitely more assumptions you'd have to counter to make going against the grain and having unrealistic things like mages can't use swords uh, or wear armor a uh, valid uh, thing that registers in a player's mind is valid video games are finite they're non-negotiable you have to interact with their systems 
So if a mage can't wear a certain kind of armor or use a certain kind of weapon, there's not going to be, you're not exactly going to argue with it, and eventually you're just going to accept it. Mm. Cool. So, I, yeah, I guess that's pretty much all we can say on that, as far as I know. Um, so, as long as we have a little bit of extra time left, and I have a little bit of extra beer left, um, I was thinking about introducing another section of the uh, podcast called Whatcha Playin', uh, but then I didn't, and then we kind of talked about it anyway, because usually we get around to whatever we're playing anyway. So, uh, But like I said, this week I've been playing... Um, Basically, mostly Final Fantasy VII Remake of Beat Celeste and Beat um, The Last of Us. So, all, all really good games there. Um, I haven't talked a lot about Final Fantasy VII Remake this week. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's it's really good. I'm uh, eight chapters in, I think. Um, just kind of getting to Aerith's house now. Uh, she's a lot more annoying than I remember her. I don't remember her being so annoying. And maybe it's just that, like, she has a voice now, and so it kind of comes off as, like, being a little cheeky instead of, like, a cute flower girl who's trying to get the warrior to fall in love with her or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know. It just comes across a little different. And I, like, so, so far I feel like she's really annoying. So, probably part of that is the voice, but you're also probably misremembering how she was characterized in the original Final Fantasy VII? It's possible, yeah, because like I said, I didn't remember as much as I thought when we were talking about Jesse last week. I'm like, I don't remember her hitting on Cloud much. Uh, but now I'm totally shipping them. They are so fucking adorable in this game, it's not even funny. <laughs> do, do, you re do you remember what happens to her? Uh, yes. So, but oh, I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, you could say the same thing about Eris. So. Oh yeah, it's like oh, do you worry? Well, it's she was around for longer. Right. That's more famous. Pe pe people are gonna oh. still, you know, ship them anyway. So so uh, let me have this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you know what? That's fair. Yeah. Just the ladder falling down and her going shit. I was like, yeah, that's. I, I'm pretty sure that was in the original game. No. Uh, -huh. uh. So yeah, her personality, from what I can tell, is mostly not been changed. It's just now she has a voice to be annoying with. Right, yeah. Because it, it just comes off as a little cheeky and like, ah, hi, I'm here, pay attention to me. And I'm just like, I, I kind of get... It's it's also kind of funny, though, because I really like Cloud a lot better than I did in the original. Because in the original, I feel like he kind of came off as this vanilla Avatar character where he's just like kind of going through the motions. But with the way that he expresses himself... And all this kind of thing. I think it comes off a little more like, you know, he's a fairly battle-hardened warrior. He's seen a lot of shit, and he's just, like, kind of trying to distance himself from the world. Because, you know, he doesn't want to get too close to anything. Because, you know, he knows it's it could go down in, in his line of work. Uh, and stuff like that. So it, I feel like you get a lot more depth from Cloud's character, even though I feel like the lines are, if not identical, they're right around the same kind of thing as what he said in the original. It's just like, I'm just here to get paid. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that if I was to get a PS4, I'd probably be picking it up for this. 
Yeah, this is definitely, if there's a game to buy a PS4 specifically for that game, I'd give it to this game or Death Stranding. I feel like those are the need-to-have games on this console. And Death Stranding is one I look at and I'm like, it looks interesting. I don't know I don't know if that would hold up when I played it, if I'd be able to get into it in the way some people did, or if I'd just be bored out of my mind. It's a weird, very divisive game, too. So it's like, it's it's hard for me to say that because I know I love it so much, but I know that some people are just like, what the fuck ever. It's like, just looking at videos of it, I'm like, I understand why some people love it and why some people hate, hate it. And I f- feel like if I were to play it, I would either love it or I'd be like, it's not really my thing. It's... There's, there's a lot of downtime, and maybe maybe I'm too ADHD to deal well with a lot of downtime in my video games. I didn't feel like there was a lot of downtime, because I feel like you can, like, basically as long as you, like, equip yourself properly when you're at the towns, you're just, like, pretty much going between where you need to go. You're always on the move, kind of. So I, I never felt like there was really any downtime. Okay. I feel like, though, it would be a very different experience from mine, because, like, I kind of tried to go blank on Death Stranding content before it came out and everything. Because, like, I saw the first trailer, and I was like, that is trippy and interesting enough that I just know I want this game, no matter what it's about. Like, I've got no fucking clue what it's about. And I kind of just, like, I watched the trailers, but other than that, I, like, pretty much blacked out any media talking about Death Stranding until its release. So I was basically going in blind. I'd never seen any gameplay videos. I had no idea what I was going to be in for. I didn't really even understand much of the story because I feel like the there's a certain Kojima-ness to the story where it's like a little bit trippy and weird. And the trailers were like that. They took that Kojima-ness and they multiplied it by like 75. So it was just like... Like, I don't understand how anybody understood anything from the trailers, honestly. Like, I watched them, and I was like, this is trippy, this is dark, it's, like, maybe a little fucked up, I'm not sure, but it's it's awesome, and I want it. There are people that go through those trailers and just analyze it. Yeah, and it's funny, because I watched, like, analysis videos like that for, like, Zelda trailers and stuff, but for this one, I was just like, nope, I, <laughs> I don't quite understand what it's about, and I don't want to going in. I want to go in completely blind, basically. And I did, and I think that was, like, one of the reasons why I liked it so much was because I couldn't have possibly seen any of it coming. I, I also feel like like you and I have a different relationship with a game series like Zelda than, say, we might have with uh, Metal Gear's uh, or Death Stranding, or, like, any host of other games. Yeah. And how we approach them. That's true, because, like, with Zelda, I'm just, like, I'm all about it. I want to find out as much as I can uh, as far as the lore goes. I don't want to watch, like, a bunch of gameplay, but, like, kind of enough to get myself into the mindset of what the gameplay might be like. But, like, I don't like being totally split because, like, uh, for an example, I was really kind of spoiled uh, for Twilight Princess for a while because there was so much kind of leading up to that with E3 demos that 
you know, people posted videos of and stuff like that, that basically I'd seen almost the entire first dungeon uh, and everything leading up to it before I played it. And that's like, it's, it does not have a short tutorial segment. It has a notoriously long tutorial segment. Um, because like hours. Yeah, uh, depending on the playthrough. I, I actually kind of was interested. So the last time I played Twilight Princess, I timed myself to get through the tutorial segment. And it was, you can do it in about 45 minutes if you don't, if you know what you're doing like I do. Because I've played Twilight Princess through, you know, 10 or 15 times. I don't know. But if, you know, if it's your first time, people are always uh, saying it's around, you know, three or four hours. And I'm like, so it's... And, and then including the first dungeon, it's certainly even more than that. So it's like maybe the first five hours of gameplay, I'm not seeing anything new. I'm like, I already saw all this. Um, but at the same time, they're also taking a really different approach with Breath of the Wild, obviously, because I watched probably at least as much total gameplay videos and think probably more because there was just so much more gameplay videos from like small YouTube channels that went to E3 uh, stuff like that and I was just kind of looking for all of these things that like you know the demo footage and this and that and the like the Nintendo Treehouse streamed it for like two days straight basically <laughs> so there was so much to see uh but at the same time, when I got onto the Great Plateau for myself, I still felt blind because of the way that the game is designed. So there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. Would you like to know what I've been playing? Yes, I would. That's part of the segment. So since I've got over that, then you'll go over that. So most recently, I've been playing just like a whole host of games. Cool. But uh, first I got back into Ark Survival Evolved for a little bit. I really kind of wanted to get into that game, but like it just looks so stupidly clunky on the Switch version that I never got into it. And I was like, maybe <laughs> is it a little better on PC? Or I, I assume you're playing on PC? It's still a bit clunky on PC. I would say I enjoy the game when I play it. Right. But you absolutely should not play it because it is a game designed for people who do not have a life outside of it. Okay, that's kind of annoying. Because that's, that's uh, kind of why I don't play MMOs. <laughs> yeah, it's it's designed so that you need to. There's like things that you can that you do where you need to be on for probably eight or nine hours. Hmm. And uh, it expect. If you log off, your body just goes unconscious on the server. Uh-huh. So you can just get attacked while you're unconscious and killed. Uh, your food meter and Weird. drink meter continue to go down. So it's very... It's, it's like a design that's hostile to you not playing the game. Huh. Which I don't like. I don't, I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm not sure, because it's like... If it was just kind of a, you know, log in, log out, and it, it had those mechanics going in while you were in, that sounds fine. But if it's like, you can just log out, like, and go get lunch, and a fucking dinosaur is going to eat you, that's kind of annoying. Well, it's like, you can log out, but you meet, need to make sure you log out in your base. Right. So dinosaurs can't break in and eat you. Okay. So if you've and got then, kind of a safe spot, that's a little better. It, yeah, it's, it's better in that way. 
but if you're like playing on a PvP server, which are all the official servers, uh, the another tribe can just break into your house and murder your entire tribe while you're asleep, and you don't really have a way of responding. Now that's fucking silly. And so, I, trying to figure out how that style of gameplay got started. Because mm-hmm. I know Minecraft... It's like Minecraft was like the popularizer of that, but Minecraft was also much friendlier in design. Uh-huh. Anyway, I guess I would. I would say is I enjoy playing the game. I have fun when I'm playing it, but don't play it. <laughs> right. Uh, I've also been playing... Uh, uh, Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition multiplayer mm. a bit of. Uh, I've been playing that with Josh. Sweet. And that game in multiplayer is actually uh, it's still just as fun as it is in single player but it has a bunch of technical issues with it. Uh-huh. I've also been playing Synthetic which is like a top-down roguelike shooter with mouse and keyboard where you can collect weapons and items and stuff. Cool. And you kill robots. And I've that one game is actually a ton of fun. Uh-huh. And it goes out of its way to be as hard as possible in terms of things like reloading a gun when you hit you have to hit E to eject the magazine. Then you have to hit R and then you have to hit R again on the active reload or let it uh, complete. Uh-huh. Uh, and sometimes when firing the gun, it can jam. Huh. And you have to fight to get it unjammed. Mm-hmm. It so, sounds like it would be either a really neat mechanic or just balls annoying, like... And no in between, but it, it. I feel like it would be like one sometimes and a different one the other times, like uh, tripping in Smash Brothers Brawl, where it's, it's like, better than because tr- uh, when you clear a jam, it reloads your magazine automatically. Okay, so it's not that bad, right? But it's it's not too annoying. Mm-hmm. It's so I've I've been having quite a bit of fun with that. Mm-hmm. I just got done playing a session of a game called Broforce. Huh. Which is I a game like where you play various knockoffs of action movie stars. Uh-huh. And it's kinda like contra rules where one hit kills you instantly. Okay. But you can get extra lives that are different characters and they all have different abilities and different attack styles so like you can play Chuck Norris Texas Ranger (laughs) and then if he dies you resurrect as like Neo from the Matrix (laughs) Uh, they play totally differently and MacGyver is the worst character that's sad yeah all all he can do is toss dynamite it, it, it's kind of awesome playing a game where the worst character is the one that tosses dynamite. Right? How does that work? Uh, <laughs> it's not very accurate. <laughs> Apparently. And it doesn't throw very far, so you have to get up right close to them. 
But once you throw it at somebody, it sticks to them like a sticky bomb. <laughs> and his his ultimate is a uh, bomb stuffed in a turkey, so it attracts <laughs> the enemies to it, and then it explodes. <laughs> That's ingenious. And it's like a side-scrolling game where you can like mine through the walls, but just by shooting at them or even like stabbing them with a knife. So yeah, that game's a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds like it. I've also been playing Call of Cthulhu with my Sunday group. Nice. I was going to say, we should also do a, a tabletop kind of recap of what various things we've been doing. Uh, so how do you like yeah. Call of Cthulhu? I actually had a somebody was asking me if that would work well on um, Discord and Roll20, and I was like, I'm not sure, I've never played Call of Cthulhu. I don't think you even need Roll20 for Call of Cthulhu, as long as you have, like, a dice roller that everybody has access to. Right. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun with it, but granted, it's kind of a hacked version. Okay. Because we didn't, like, the sanity mechanics uh -huh. behind how it was just, you could roll and then just completely lose control over your character uh, for a session and just watch them die. Mm-hmm. It's like, so it's like a 30 to an hour and a half failure uh, where you're just going to die and you know you're going to die and you don't have any control over the outcome. Mm. So the way it's been changed is that the, the house rule there, it eventually got changed to was that you get to control how your character goes insane when they go insane temporarily. Uh-huh. So that you at least have some control over what they're doing. Even if it totally screws you, you can at least have fun with that. Nice. Uh, but we ended up playing a session where we confronted a monster, and because we're all, like, we play, like, dandy players, we shot at it until it died. Uh-huh. Uh, but half of our group died to it, uh, died to these monsters, just trying to get out of the location. And I'll say that it's the first Call of Cthulhu game where my character got out of the adventure significantly saner than they entered. Hmm. Because also in Call of Cthulhu, there's a mechanic for when you complete an adventure during development, you can also regain some sanity. Nice. And the character I played succeeded every sanity roll they made. And then basically won the adventure, got out, and gained way more than they had lost. Nice. Funny how that so, works sometimes. So if you're into like a horror game and you like your characters losing their shit, and going kind of crazy, uh, and all, but also occasionally succeeding in bizarre ways or mm. dying in hilarious ways. Call of Cthulhu can be fun, and and you don't need you don't need like a play mat to enjoy it. Right. Cool. All right. So uh, in our Saturday game, we've been having some interesting fun. You just kind of we're going through a temple looking for a 
the god of stone f from a weird misadventure that you guys have accidentally, one of you has employed by the god of dragons to <laughs> go find him. So I thought that was a kind of a hilarious series of misadventures through the halls of uh, the god of stone, who's like this meticulous craftsman guy. And uh, you find out that he's been basically through his diary and some other stuff that he's been uh, fucking the god of or the goddess of ice. And now you're like, OK, hold on. Now he's in a different country. We've been looking this whole time for him in here. Now, this is a little awkward. <laughs> so we stole his throne and sold it. Yes, you did. That was hilarious, too. So I would like to point out that it's funny how our, how much our characters have misconceptions about the world, since I don't think any of them are knowledgeable about the religions. Uh-huh. So they'll set off and they'll say things that are completely incorrect and incite things as bad as boars because they misunderstood what was going on. Yeah, like, uh, cause that, that, that kind of happened because <laughs> literally I kind of designed this campaign and kind of hoped that a Ragnarok would, uh, set off and I kind of designed it to try and set off a Ragnarok, but I got you guys like this kind of in this position where you could have prevented it maybe, or maybe at least seen it coming. So you could have redirected, you know, some of the casual damage. Uh, but instead, like, uh, I also rolled on a random encounter table that your character was wanted in the country that you returned to. And so you return to town, and some guards are like, you guys are wanted. We want to question you. And, you know, I feel like you probably could have role-played your way out of it somehow. But uh, my brother Dan uh, role-played his way out of it by basically telling them that some guys from this other country had set up this whole thing and they were going to attack. And so this country that was, you know, previously peaceful to these uh, guys had, you know, totally no preparation whatsoever when the uh, inhabitants of the country ruled over by the God of Stone just came and fucking wiped them out. That started the apocalypse. A little bit, yeah. So now there's like this whole big deal with different warring factions, and I've been kind of, behind the scenes, I've been kind of playing with the politics of what gods are on what sides, and, you know, because some of them are still just kind of doing their jobs, kind of taking a back seat, because all of the gods in this world have an important job to do, uh, you know, some sort of important job, because um, obviously there's like the some gods rule the world in the daytime and some rule the world in the nighttime and they use a magic spell to keep this evil demon ass thing in the center of the earth asleep but at some point like a god has to be casting the spell actively for the entirety of the day or it will wear off so there's like kind of a lot going on there where I'm like okay who's going to be casting the spell now and now you guys have killed some of the gods and uh, pissed off some of the other gods and some of the gods just don't seem to care and kind of want to watch the world burn <laughs> so all sorts of wacky shit has kind of uh, gone off on this and and it's all Dan's fault 
Yeah, Dan. Yeah. I'm going to have a new beer of the week uh, right now at the end of the episode. Uh, it's Mike's Hard Pineapple Mandarin Lemonade, which my wife apparently didn't want to take the last swig before she went to bed, so she handed it to me. So here's a Mike's Hard Pineapple Mandarin Lemonade. That's a lot of fruit. in you know, Pineapple, oranges, and lemons, I guess. Huh. I feel like Mike's Hard are good things to drink like when you want to stay at the level of drunk you're at. Right. But you don't want to increase the level of drunk you're at Oh, near the end of the night. Right. My wife got a giant-ass can one time of Mike's Harder Lemonade, which is 10% instead of 5%. And she was, like, halfway through it, and she was just like, I don't know what's fucking going on. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but she was like, it was, it was pretty funny just to kind of watch, like, I was like, you know that says it's 10% right. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> she just had no idea. Thought it was like regular mics just in a big bottle or big can. Ooh. That was pretty funny. Yeah, so this mostly tastes like pineapple juice. It's not bad. Uh, sweet, pineapple 10. Yeah, that sounds, a, sounds like a mic's hard. Yeah. To me. Um, I don't mind them. They're they're fine. I'll drink them they're, on. They're, they're, they're good, inoffensive nice, refreshing. And yeah, nice refreshing kind of a drink, depending on what your kind of thing is. Yeah, so, I'm like, yeah. You drink, you can drink beer, and then you drink, drink beer and liquor early in the night, mm-hmm. and then you have mics if you want to stay, kind of stay drunk, but not get a lot drunker. Yeah. All right, so now's that part of the uh, episode where we just kind of talk about random bullshit until somebody says something really awkward, like uh, horse penis. Mm, that's pretty. That's uh, not. Is that awkward enough? No, not. not but it, you know, it's an example. Something awkward like horse. Like if the phrase horse penis just came up naturally in conversation, maybe. Yeah. Like, uh, have you ever noticed that they think they're kind of shaped weird? No, I've never actually like looked directly at a horse penis. I don't like I've I've noticed them dangling there, but then I'm just like, eh, whatever. It's an animal. It's got a penis. No, you haven't looked at the same porn I have. No, not that. Not that porn. I have looked no. at some of the same porn I've you have probably, but not not that one. I mean, like realistically, there, there's a good chance we haven't. You know, that's this possible with how much porn there is in the world. Who, who the fuck knows? This is the guy who said the joke about if you took a baby and you made it watch the porn, all the porn A through Z, it would die before it got to anal <laughs> of old age. Huh. That's a lot of porn. Yeah. Um... I guess like, the only thing we know for sure that we have both seen is that picture of that guy whacking off in a Superman pose. Yeah, th- thanks for that, Sean. Yeah, I, I made awkward family memories for you. My dad nearly saw that. I thought he did see that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember how you told the story, but I was just like... Yeah, I am the reason that Chris has a password lock on his laptop now. Sean is the reason I have a password lock on my laptop. Yep. It's, uh, 
was not a thing I needed before then. Yeah, but then suddenly there's a guy jacking off in a Superman pose on your desktop when your dad comes in and sees your computer. It's like, oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, Optimus Prime is cool. Is that awkward enough? I don't know. I'm just, like, trying to say stuff because I'm like, what, what? where do we go now? Because it's, like, not quite awkward enough. So now I'm like, do I steer the conversation in another direction and maybe it'll become awkward? Uh, and then I was, like, looking around and I'm like, I got this little Optimus Prime toy on my desk right here where I keep him all the time because he's awesome. You know, I, I, I guess I never really enjoyed the Transformer movies. Huh. It just kind of, it's like, I cannot tell you what happened in them. Hmm. Even um, though I watched, like, I watched them. Yeah, the Michael Bay ones were so-so in retrospect. I really liked the first one when it came out, but, like, now going back, it's just like, okay, there's there's too much humans going on, which is always my problem with Transformers because it's always like they're trying to find an excuse to make the humans important in the story I feel like and I'm just like I don't want the humans to be important in the story you've got so many great Autobot and Decepticon characters focus on them they can be on Earth and you can have some human characters being like what the fuck do we do with this shit there's robots having a war on our planet or something but you, you don't need them. Like, I feel like one of the coolest concepts was uh, for Transformers was for the um, Fall of Cybertron video game, where it's literally just you're the Autobots on Cybertron fighting the war with the Decepticons. There's no humans at all. They're billions of miles away, and the fucking world is better for it. It just seems like it would be better. Yeah. Um, or it's like Beast Wars, where... There's no humans. It's just Transformers. Yeah. So I don't think any of them are terrible that I've seen, but there are some that I'm just like, yeah, instead of watching the movie, you should look up the fight scenes on YouTube and, and skip all the rest of it. There. Yeah. Because a lot of it is the high-flying spectacle of the fight scenes, and, and I enjoy some of the Transformers stories, uh, but a lot of them are just like, uh, Michael Bay is looking for an excuse to make a hot chick front and center and then have a bunch of explosions. And he is great at directing Transformers fight scenes, and he is not great at directing hot chicks doing stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a wash. He's good at picking hot chicks to look hot. Yeah, but, I mean, you could you could trust most Duke guys to do that. <laughs> right. Like, not all guys, but most guys. Most guys. Not me. I'd pick a blue-haired anime boy. I mean, to be fair, they, you, you'd get some real niche appeal with that. I would. Actually, not not even niche appeal. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's like, a lot of people that want to see that. Probably, yeah. I mean, who doesn't like a good blue-haired anime boy? I mean, like, I'm lukewarm on blue-haired anime boys. 